Welcome, everyone, to the second episode of the Pod Against America. I'm, uh, as always, thrilled to welcome my my good pal, Jim Baker. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rob. Great to be back. Uh, it's great to have you back. I couldn't do it without you. Uh, I actually, on my other podcast, uh, we made a format change a few weeks ago, and I am responsible for recording an intro all by myself and I usually go three or four minutes and it's still a very disorienting for me to just talk into sort of a vacuum and I always worry that I'm going to be rambling and maybe go on for far too long and run on sentences and people will get terribly sick of me and turn off the podcast before we even get to the guest so it's nice to have somebody to talk to you see how I let you talk there I did. You let me ramble. Uh, so, so for anyone who's tuning in for the first time, this podcast is all about, well, usually about, for the most part about, uh, HBO's new series, The Plot Against America. And if you missed the first episode, um, when we sort of did a long intro and did some background on alternate, alternative World War II history, those sorts of things, we would encourage you to go back. Um, I want to do a little housekeeping. Um, I want to mention a couple of things that might also be interesting to listen to. Uh, Fresh Air, uh, Terry Gross did an interview with Philip Roth many years ago, 14, 16 years ago, I guess, about the, the source material, his novel, The Plot Against America, which is outstanding. Uh, there is also an official HBO uh, HBO-sponsored podcast about the show featuring... Peter Sagal from NPR, and among other people, uh, David Simon, who is the showrunner for The Plot Against America, and I, I fi- have found found the first episode entertaining and informative and all of those good things, but we bring something different. We bring some objectivity, because obviously the, the HBO, the official podcast, is never going to be critical about anything, as I learned on their Cher- Chernobyl podcast. So with all that said, and I could probably think of some more things people should listen to, but Jim, I have to ask you, first of all, what did you think about the White Walls? <laughs> yeah, last week, uh, I made a comment that in movies set in old days, too many cars have white wall tires because collectors come out and they, they want to bring their best car. Uh, the main cars, the star cars, were good. They didn't have white walls, but most of the cars in the background did. <laughs> so there were a few tears now, shed. I don't, I've always, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, um, privately, never for public consumption, never, but never in public. It, public I, I'm places. sure I've asked you this before, but I've forgotten the answer. So this is going to be new for everybody. What would be a realistic percentage of white wall tired cars in that era? I'm going to say 20%, mm-hmm. maybe 10, depending where you were. I mean, if you were in some little town in Kansas, you know, maybe the banker would have, would have white walls. Everybody else would be riding black walls. Right. Um, and in the movies, it's going to be more like, what, 80 to 100%? Probably, yeah, 75%, something like that. Now, along the similar lines, and we'll, we'll talk about the actual content and the, the, the artfulness uh, of the show, of course, later, but uh, the technical stuff. Um, the other thing you and I have discussed is, I think, is the fact that these shows about that era, what actually not just that era, could be the 30s, could be the 40s, really pretty much any time. It seems like they can't resist making everything incredibly clean and shiny, right? Yes, and I, I like the art direction in Plot Against America. It's very stripped down. The apartment is not cluttered with with a lot of stuff. Uh, beautiful natural lighting in the show. I'm sure you noticed that. That, I mean, it, there's barely a lamp in the show. There's barely a light, especially in the daytime. It's whatever's coming in through the window. That's the right. that's the lighting you're going to get, and it mm-hmm. looks great. There's not a lot of adornment. You don't see a lot of signs. A, a lot of shows set in in the past will rely on billboards and. Uh, street signs and um, 
boxes of cereal sitting on tables to, yes. to illustrate this is the year. You and know, the one thing I noticed that was I thought it was, was really nifty was the. Did you notice the stop signs? Yes, they were white. There was a white one and a yellow one. Oh. But not a red one to be seen. And I actually listened to a podcast, I think, a few years ago that discussed the standardization of stop signs. Because at one point, I think there were all sorts of different colors. The shape has been the same for many decades. But it wasn't until relatively recently that they all became red. Uh, anyway, I, I noticed stop signs. But you're right. There wasn't a lot of that. There weren't a lot of details set dressing that puts you in that place aside from the the cars and the clothes and those sorts of things but there weren't the they weren't there weren't you're, you're right there weren't the more obvious cues which I, which I think is refreshing I agree and you know they, they filmed in neighborhoods I, I guess most of it was filmed in Jersey City that you know they probably just had to cover a few things up and they still look basically the same as they did 80 years ago uh, one of the things I liked about the movie Minority Report is they set it in Washington, D.C., in vintage-looking homes, only that's far in the future. And you have to assume that in the future, not all houses are going to be futuristic. People are still right. going to be living in these same houses. I thought that was right. a great touch in that movie. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you just back the car out of the driveway, the, the modern car, and you roll the, the vintage one in, in a lot of places. Uh, be careful not to have too many houses with vinyl siding, which is a real problem in, in you know, Essex County. A problem, right. <laughs> a problem for a filmmaker looking to make a, <laughs> an old movie. I'm sure the the homeowner loves their vinyl, vinyl siding, and uh, you know you're good to go. Well, David Simon, uh, that's the right name, right? The first name is David Simon. I feel like mm -hmm. I'm okay. David Simon talked about the the filming a little bit in the the podcast, and the when 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 Roth wrote the book, he as as everyone knows, he he basically he was a character. His parents were characters. It's a novel, but all his real family are there, and he used his real house as well in the book. So he essentially reproduced his house uh, in a in a fictional setting, and it's still there, the actual house. <laughs> now they couldn't use the house. They couldn't use the same street. Simon said that, uh, as he put it, the that that street that block was problematic because of overhead wires and whatnot but they found another one just a few blocks away that was almost exactly the same so uh there's a great deal of verisimilitude when it comes to at least the where, where they live now of course they i'm sure they had to the thing they can do now is they can in post-production they can if there are wires they can get rid of those uh and i'm sure they had to do some of that work but uh, for the most part when you see those houses in that neighborhood that's what it was like. It's amazing to think 80 years ago was basically the same as it is today, and they were able to film there. Right, and it's a very nice neighborhood, which yeah, I, house, don't, I don't think came across in the book what a nice neighborhood it was. No, you know, it's I had the same when I was. My memory of the book is that it was more of an uh, urban, uh, an urban area with right. apartment buildings, not what looked like houses that had been turned into apartments. Um, so that was a surprise, but I guess I guess. Maybe Roth didn't actually make any attempts to reproduce his his home, or maybe I just have forgotten. I mean, you said you, you just recently read it though, and you you thought it was more urban in the book. I did. Uh, it, in that you mentioned the interview with Terry Gross that he did, and she asked him the question I really wanted the answer to, which was why did you name the characters after your own family? And he said, I, I thought his answer was great. The the story is far-fetched. It's it's make-believe. So he wanted to ground it in reality by centering it on his own family. Right. And I thought that was a great device. Now, in the show, they've changed the name from Roth to Levin. Yeah, and Sagal asked Simon about that. And he said that was actually, and this surprised me because I had assumed uh, it was the other way around, but it was actually Roth asked them to change it. Maybe he demanded they change the name. And his, his rationale according to Simon, who got to spend 90 minutes with Roth before Roth, before Roth died. Um, Roth's rationale was that he was comfortable using his own family, or at least his own family's names, and the, essentially the same characters, when he had complete control over the process. Every single detail in the book is exactly the way Roth wanted it to be, but he knew that when he let it go, 
and I think graciously let that go and let other people work with the material that of course they would change the characters some and you know add details take some away whatever and he just wasn't comfortable with his family's name being attached when it, they weren't his creations anymore so that makes perfect sense and of course it works fine it does I, I wanted uh, to I, mention to you in case go ahead oh I was going to say I, I really like Aji Robertson playing Philip mm-hmm. he has this great quality that the world is swirling around him and he, he doesn't know what's going on there's a there's a ad campaign running right now and it features a number of different kids interacting with their family how did you know how to get that pizza delivered here so fast how did you get those tickets so fast the, the kid is completely out of touch in wonder of their use of the internet in this case and uh young philip is like that in 1940 how is this happening why is this happening <laughs> what's going what, why did daddy curse so much right what, what is who are those men what is this it's a world of wonder uh as it turns out not very good wonder <laughs> the portent well, of we'll, evil we'll find out in later episodes <laughs> right uh, but i mean uh, to some degree this is this was sort of a warm-up episode right i mean and i want to talk about that a lot um mm-hmm. in a minute, before we before we let the uh production go i just wanted to give a brief shout out to eddie's wasn't that great? Have you been to Eddie's? No. Uh, it's a it's Eddie's sweet shop. There are a couple, two or three scenes that are set either both outside and inside. Actually, the settings are inside, probably a set. I don't know. But we see the out, the exterior of Eddie's sweet shop. And uh, it looked so real that I was just hoping that it's real. And you know what? It is real. <laughs> uh, it's it's. 95 years old it's been in queens in the forest hill section of queens so i suppose in the in the show you're you're led to assume that it's in it's in new jersey someplace in, in near newark um or in newark but it's actually in forest hills queens and it is billed as sometimes the oldest ice cream shop in new york sometimes more often one of the oldest um but it, it's just fantastic uh uh i'd love to visit someday I, I i once visited a 1920s ice cream fount, ice cream shop slash soda fountain in small town in iowa and it's just uh it doesn't get any better than that yeah it looks great and kudos to them for keeping it keeping it old one i'm sure even in the 40s they were being pushed to modernize it <laughs> <laughs> That's right. we have i know of only two working soda fountains in Portland proper. Uh, do you have any in Austin? Not that I know of. Huh. You might want to do a search. There might be one hidden away in an old drugstore. The only two we have left are in actual working pharmacies, and they've just uh, kept them. I mean, there's we a vintage lunch counter uh, called Nalls, which is, mm-hmm. I think, still around. I haven't been there in a few years, which is a trip. Uh, that's a must-see. But I don't know that they actually pump soda fountain style huh uh so about the, the 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 characters i would agree with you that the the philip character is wonderfully cast and the, his his older brother too i think is does a really good job i mean that's always sort of the danger you, there's so much bad child acting and then you see things where the the acting's perfect and you think when it's not great what were they looking for right because they get to <laughs> sift through usually hundreds of kids uh right it isn't like most shows where they they already the casting director already thinks well there's maybe 18 people who might be good for this well maybe we'll see most of them and and how can we go wrong but with kids you always hear these stories about casting calls where the kid's never done anything before or he's never been on screen before whatever so they get 800 kids showing up and then they somehow manage to pick the wrong one I don't even know how that happens. Well, they're but too in, far into it. Maybe the kid had a great audition. Or maybe right, he, or they were just looking for, I think too often they look for the cute kid. You know what I mean? Right, yes. Can, or or the, the kid went home after, and he, I got the, he tells all the kids in the neighborhood, I got the part, and they go, acting's for jerks. And he, he's ashamed, <laughs> and he, he doesn't come in and do his best job. <laughs> but I mean, you know, related storyline, um, 
the kid in Jojo Rabbit was just phenomenal. Uh, he, he made the movie. Could have been oh, I shouldn't say an, that. It was a great movie. He should have been nominated for Best Actor. Because in a movie like that, if the kid doesn't deliver the goods, you don't have a movie. Right. There are some movies that are hinged on the performance of one actor or actress. And if, if they don't show up with that performance, you got nothing. You've got a failure. And in Jojo Rabbit, just incredible performance by that kid. But the, in this show, the acting that struck me, and I, I think I've just become sort of a... Um, I, I don't know if she can do any wrong. Uh, Zoe Kazan, for me, was just phenomenal. And she was amazing in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Buster, that's not right, is it? Um, whatever Scruggs it was. Uh, <laughs> that was Buster. She was... It was Buster? Okay. I don't right. know why I'm blanking. Because I kept saying Buster flat. <laughs> so I know I mean, it's Buster Scruggs. I knew it had so the Buster part right. I, I'd never really seen her in anything before before Buster Scruggs. Um, and now you look her up and she has written multiple plays. She's written or co-written two movies that have been highly regarded. And her acting is just fantastic. I, I just think, uh, to me, she's... She's not a breakout star because she's already broken out. But to, for me, she's she's why I, I would keep watching this show, even if I didn't love everything else about it. I'd like to say something about acting in general in, in the current times. First of all, there are more acting jobs than ever on television and in movies because of the peak TV. But I think the level of acting right now is so great that when someone delivers a stinker performance, it really sticks out because... There's so little of it. You'll watch a show and it'll have 30 people in it you've never seen before. And all of them do a competent job. And, you know, 25 of them you never hear from again. <laughs> and I, I just wonder, I mean, think about think about some of the people that were on The Wire, speaking of David Simon. Right. You know, we've never seen them again. And they were all, they were great. Well, we've so, seen Idris Elba a few times. Yes. <laughs> but but no, your, your your point is well taken, <laughs> and they went into this. They and they went picked up a bunch of people just in that in the Baltimore area, right? And they were great, and they were great. And, uh, they probably thought this is it. I'm on yep. my way, Hollywood. Here I come. I, uh, I you know I had a similar reaction when I watched The Man in the High Castle, which was shot in the Vancouver area, I believe. Yeah, it was, and a lot of the actors especially the secondary roles, but not all of them were Canadian actors who I'd never seen before. And yet the acting was at worst competent and often better than that. So it, I had the same, almost exactly the same uh, thought that you did, that there are so many good actors out there. Just give them a decent script and they'll go. Right. I, I think about the way TV movies were 40 years ago and you know, probably maybe it wasn't the fault of the actors; it was the scripts. I don't know, but I, I, just, I just think the level of acting right now in the world in 2020 is head and shoulders above it was 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Right. I, oh no, I think there's no question about that. Uh, all you have to do is look. You and I grew up in the 70s watching shows like um, Hawaii Five-O and. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of all the other shows. I used to watch everything when I was a kid. And I, I didn't. You didn't? What were you doing? No. You were You were making music and acting in plays and uh, <laughs> no, creating was... little puppet shows for your, for your parents. I know what you were doing. <laughs> yes, there was some of that. <laughs> but my idea of watching television was watching movies, watching sports, and sitcoms. I would watch sit some sitcoms. But I never wa I rarely watched hour-long dramas in the seventies. I just I just found them awful. Now here's a question. I, I certainly again I agree with you about dramatic acting. Do you think comic acting is is any better now than it was in the seventies? Because boy, I still can watch some of those shows from the seventies and, and the sixties too, and think this is just as good as anything I'm going to see now. Well, the the, the good stuff's good. And the good stuff lasts. And that goes for 75, 80 years ago, too. I mean, I'll still watch the Marx Brothers and laugh as if it happened yesterday. Right. As if it was filmed yesterday. But I think anytime someone tries too hard in comedy and they're seen to be trying too hard, that's when the problems erupt. Um, 
when they wink at the camera a little too much. They're, when they're in on the joke and they convey that they're in on the joke, that to me is a failure in comic acting. Although people love it. I mean, when you watch... Yeah, I, I'm not, I, I'm I not talking about... a show like... Hello? I lost you for a second there. Yeah. Are you still there? that out. I'm here. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I'll edit it out. So let me make a note at uh, roughly 20 minutes. So you were saying I'm talking about, about, and then you you were just gone. I was going to say I'm not talking about the office. That kind of looking at the camera. Oh, no, no. Okay, so let's um, let's just pick it up from there. So you say... I'm not talking about the office, Parks and Rec, winging at the camera. I mean that the, the actor says, "I'm in a comedy. Look at me. I'm in a comedy," which was an acting style in the old days. Uh, you know, they they do the slow boil and <laughs> you know go really over the top. I, you know, it's a more subtle style of of comedy now. Well, in a lot of ways, the, the the good stuff is more subtle. But you watch The Big Bang Theory, and it's joke show two people thinking that's stupid, another joke. Show two more people thinking that's silly. I mean, so in, it depends on which ones you're watching. You're right. I, I haven't watched much of The Big Bang Theory. I've yeah, I've only seen a few minutes because I can't handle more than that. But, but uh, <laughs> there are still plenty of of um, sort of prototypical sitcoms out there. We just don't. We don't. You and I don't watch them. But I know they're out there on networks, especially. Well, there's so a place to, for that, keeping people happy, keeping the oh, masses no, people, happy. People love them. People yeah. love them, and uh, comedy writers need to work. So, um, so good for them. Uh, getting back to our show, were there any other performances in the first episode that that, that stood out for you? I'm liking I'm liking Morgan Spector uh-huh. as Herman Levin. I think yes. he's. He's got that intensity that comes across in the book and a, a sense of self-righteousness and, and he's conveying that very nicely. Uh, you know, a man who, like I'm sure many of us are feeling now, is caught up in, in day-to-day events and has no power over them. Right. And he's feeling that, like, what can I do? Well, what he does is what we all do now is he goes to the movie theater that specializes, that only shows newsreels. And watches the news, much as we would turn on a cable news network. And by the way, I, did, I didn't know that even existed. Did you? Yes. I remember there was one in New York. I've seen pictures of the one in New York. I, I huh. never thought, oh, well, they must be everywhere. But uh-huh. I guess they were. And you would probably just pay, pay your admission, and then you can stay in there as long as you want. Right. I think that was a case with most theaters in the mm-hmm. in the old days unless it was a special screening then right. they would then they would come in and clear the clear the house and refill it you know i thought he was i thought he was great i totally bought him as the father uh i mean really there weren't any performances the only one that that sort of stands out because it's obviously idiosyncratic was Torturo. What did you think of him? Well, in, he, he is a Southern. He is a, a native of the South. So Turturro had to dust off his accent from Oberon Where Art Thou. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, I knew he was, I know he's 100% Sicilian. I didn't know he was from the South. Oh, no, no, no. I meant I meant the character. Oh, the character. Yes. yes. <laughs> Rabbi, Rabbi Bengelsdorf. Got it. Is, is from the South. And right. So <laughs> Turturro had to dust off the accent. From Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So we haven't seen much of him yet. His his time is coming. Uh, I heard a uh, on the podcast they talked a little bit about casting Torturo because Simon said when he first conceived this whole project or first started working on it, he wanted to cast Jews in every single role and in all the at the top of all the production departments, just so the whole show would sort of drip with Jewishness, but he just wound up, for whatever reason, just didn't feel that he could do that. And Torturo, as he pointed out, um, I love this line, he said, um, 
he said the fact that he hadn't played a rabbi is an accident of history, uh, you know, previously, because he's, of course, played Jews in so many other shows, most no, most notably, I guess, Barton Fink, which was, right. you know, perhaps his greatest role. We could quibble about that all day long. But um, one of his few lead roles in a, in a movie that people still talk about. Um, and honestly, uh, he, he is he is amazing because he can he can play a full Italian as he has done multiple times, and he can also play um, Jewish characters, and you'd never know. Right, like the the way Anthony Quinn used to jump around. I don't know how many different ethnicities he played in his career. Uh, Right, and of course, De De Niro has played both Jews and Italians many times. um, Right, Once Upon a Time in America. Yep, and I think he was Jewish in... um, um, you know what's the uh, his best known uh, or what's the movie that famously didn't win Best Picture and should have for Scorsese? <laughs> the mob movie. Oh, not not Goodfellas. Yes, Goodfellas. Yes, uh, De Niro's Jewish in that movie. Okay, I've forgotten that. That's why he couldn't be a major. Oh, and he also he's also he Jewish was... in Casino. Right. Uh, but I think I think in real life I think one of his parents was Jewish. Is that right, or am I, is that crazy? No, that that sounds crazy because isn't he famous? No, it's Scorsese, whose uh, mother has been in lots of movies and is clearly Italian. But I believe that De Niro's father was Italian and mother was Jewish. Hmm. So he comes by it as honestly as one could. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so, I think people should, you know, it's good to keep an open mind when casting. Yes, I think uh, I. Could not agree more. Uh, get the best person for the job. I guess we can argue about what best person means, but right. Uh, I think, uh, I think one character who who was, uh, you know, when you read a book, you picture people. One character who looked exactly like I pictured him was Stephen Mayer as Shishi Margulis. It's exactly what I pictured him. Sort of a huh. a, a, a Newark, New Jersey Eddie Haskell, ne'er do well mm-hmm. kind of character. <laughs> Would would you believe that the very first time he opens his mouth, I thought Eddie Haskell? Yes. <laughs> Which makes me think maybe the casting wasn't great because I'm not sure we were you and I were both supposed to think that at the same time. It took me out of the story for about two seconds. Oh, no, that's okay. Your mind yeah. can wander a little bit. It's perfectly all right. <laughs> Everyone brings these things to the to the table when they sit down to watch a show. If that's what you bring to the table, yes, I'll, so I'll the, leave it to Beaver, lingering, <laughs> residual there, thing. And, I, I wanted to ask you what you because th- I I understand this wasn't in the book. What you thought about the beer garden scene? Uh, it it looked like a fun place t- to go. Provided it wasn't filled with Nazis, you know, nice outdoor. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of that in New Jersey when I was growing up. We didn't have a lot They're of all... outdoor eating choices. Uh, <laughs> so it was nice to yes, see that. Patio, patio seating for your Aryan songs. <laughs> right. Uh, Sing, Aryan sing-alongs. You know, I don't think it takes anything away from the story. Right. I, I think it's something in character with what Alvin would do. Alvin is getting politicized he's snapping out of his sort of uh slacker hoodlum petty hoodlum uh persona and and beginning to take notice of things in the world and i think that's an entree into what he's going to do which we we see in the in the previous he's going to head off to canada and join the canadian army so I, i think that's a good first step to go beat up a couple of thugs well, the first time, I assume that's the same beer garden that we see earlier, right? Yes, that's the one they're driving past, and uh, Herman right. says some curses under that. That's what is what led Philip to say, "Why was Daddy cursing so much?" Right. Um, we're, we're, we're never. It's never. It's not. Wasn't clear to me how Alvin knows about that beer garden because he wasn't in the car when when the family drives by earlier. I suppose maybe it's the neighborhoods are close enough together that that it would just you would just naturally know it was there. Well, I think there'd um, be information flowing throughout the neighborhood. Hey, you know, there's this this bar over in Union that caters mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to 
to, to uh, these these so German you, boon guys. Union is another town near Newark. Is that Union is that right? just west of of Newark, the yeah. on the Route Twenty Two corridor. It's Newark and then Irvington, then Union. So yeah, that, that makes sense. It just wasn't the geography wasn't clear to me, and I thought about looking it up, and I thought, no, I'll just ask Jim where Union is compared to. Uh, <laughs> Union Southern is where the flagship where was on Route Twenty Two, the famous flagship. Everyone should Google that. It was a, a ship in the middle of the highway. It was a nightclub in the thirties. Now that'd be cool if, if they had a, a scene set in the, at the <laughs> flagship in Union in in nineteen thirty in nineteen forty. Was it still there in nineteen forty? Oh yeah, it was there when I, when I was a kid. It's it's still there. Oh, it was there recently. It, it was huh. torn down and rebuilt in sort of a more abstract way. But when I was a kid, mm-hmm. it was a nightclub. I remember driving past once, and Count Basie was playing there. And I vaguely remember going there. They had a little mini amusement park inside. I remember going to that as a kid. Uh, it was famous. It had a, a sailor on top doing semaphore in neon, and that was really cool. I remember. Uh, it was next to the the drive-in, and you could see the sailor from the drive-in. <laughs> <laughs> so if I if I have one quibble with the show, or the first episode, and it, this is a tiny quibble, and I totally get why they did it this way, but I felt like they s- sort of jammed a whole bunch of history and... Uh, backstory, historical backstory into basically a three-minute scene set on the front lawn of the, the apartment buildings. Did, did, did you notice that? Yes. Expand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought... At first I thought, wow, they're jumping right into the Lindbergh thing really fast. Right. I thought they would spend some time establishing that life's pretty good here in Weequake for these American Jews and it's a nice neighborhood and everyone's doing pretty well that the depression's ending and you know kids are going to school and having a good time and but they jump right into the and I said wow does I couldn't remember if the book jumped into it that fast and it does it gets to it pretty quickly Hmm. that all all is not golden right so you know they've only got what probably five and a half hours to tell us this story so i, I get why yes. they did that yeah and there has to be an assumption made that the majority of the population hasn't spent their entire lives reading about this stuff like you and i have and i yes t- totally forget most of the time that most people you know just like when if someone was a biology fan and they started spewing a bunch of stuff i would sit there slack jawed with <laughs> like what right <laughs> so i i get that so, yeah, and that's what, why I said I get it too. Yeah. You and I have both read two fantastic books on the subject in the last few months. Right. Uh, one of which is Roth's novel, and the other, the those angry hours. I got the title wrong. Those know. angry years. Yeah. Those angry years. Uh, which. <laughs> those angry days. Those angry days, my friend. <laughs> we thought they'd never end. Those angry years. <laughs> no, uh, I, I mean, I would. I have to assume that that when they were writing the series, they also relied heavily on those angry years so it's, we it's know those angry days material. those angry days to, we have I hate to, to correct you in public but it's those okay. angry days no please do the more the better so we 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 aside from the titles of the book we <laughs> the title of the book we have this source material down pretty cold and obviously the percentage of people watching who have read both of those books um pretty small so no again i do get it i just um i was just thinking oh that's a little clumsy but probably didn't have a choice right the one um so the inf- we i think you and i have talked about inflection points and alternate histories uh you know the the moment at which things could have changed but in our timeline didn't um and in the show the inflection point comes for us as viewers roughly 46 minutes into the show uh, pretty far along um up to that point, this could have been a memoir based on a memoir, right? It's it's radio days, like we talked about last week. Yes. The, the scene, the scene where the the kids are in school, it it could have been intercut into radio days. I, yes, I, <laughs> I I'm not sure. I 
So I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to talk about it, and I didn't write it down. Why? What is the? What is with the? I know it's going to come together later, and this show is not just about the Jewish experience and anti-Semitism, but just wondering, what is? It, let's say you're writing the show. Um, why do you decide to put in a scene where the kid gets a drawing of a naked woman with, I believe, no head? Uh, maybe she died. I don't know. It was it was a little off-putting. And then later, there's a scene again. <laughs> well, we're assuming pe- most of people well, listening have have watched the show, but later there's touching of of, of underwear. What do you? What's easier to draw when you're nine? <laughs> a woman's face or her torso? <laughs> yeah. So it was just and below that as well. Right. So. Where where are those scenes taking us? Isn't there always... I have not read that much Philip Roth, but isn't there always a bit of that sort of an infantile sexuality in, in yes. his work? Yes. Uh, maybe that's... He was just saying this is where it happened. This is where it started. Well, yeah, <laughs> but... We know that even doing five and a half hours, they're going to have to cut out a ton from the novel, right? right. You have to. So, and they, I, I don't even remember if those things are in the novel, but let's assume they are. Why leave them in? Wh- they, they, they do serve a story purpose. I just don't know yet what it is. Perhaps it's to establish that he's a healthy young boy with a normal appetite for, and curiosity for the unknown. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure if you're, if you're, it sounds like you're joking. Having said that, there is a there is something to be said for establishing that these are just normal human Americans, right? Yes. They're not the other. They're they not have the, the same other. desires and sexual and otherwise that, that we all have. And and maybe that maybe that helps us not that you and I need to figure that, but it does make sense to establish that these are just these are Americans. You know, we right. see the Pledge of Allegiance. There's a reason for that. You know, I Growing up where I grew up, with the friends that I had, anti-Semitism is so alien to me. I don't understand it. It does not make sense to me on any level. Right. So for, that's probably what it is. It's to show for anyone out there who still has doubts that anti-Semitism is the way to go, uh, <laughs> that this is what you're hating. You're hating a kid who's just like your kid, who collects stamps, who... You know, is curious about the female form. Uh, you know, maybe that's it. By the way, you must have been gratified to see the Lindbergh stamp in the yes. show. Yes. I wish they'd gone in close on it. That was one thing. I wish they'd gone in closer on all the stamps. Yes. That he showed, the one he showed to his brother to give him inspiration for his Arbor Day project and the Lindbergh stamp, which is part of our logo for this very podcast speaking of which, and, and you did a great job with the art thank speaking you of Rob. which speaking of being normal americans you know did you notice that they established that it within the first three minutes at the dinner table when they talked about what yeah we're baseball. americans yeah baseball he says there's i wrote it down uh the the, the father says roughing is pitching better but it'll be hard for him to win 20 again. And then uh, a, a few seconds later, there's a discussion of how the Yankees won. And and uh, Alvin says, Dickey, three-run homer. So there's all these little bits in there. And I think that I think that's what, it, what it's all about, right? These are just Americans, just like Absolutely. you and me. Absolutely. Um, and it didn't, for some reason, that didn't all come together for me until I talked it out with you. I, I was thinking, oh, they're just putting the baseball stuff into – established that we're that uh that we're in america in 1940 um, did, did you go to try to find a game where roughing pitched and won and i did and not Dickey hit a three run homer? no i did not <laughs> i think um, we've moved beyond that i'd like to think that that portion of my life where i'm that obsessed <laughs> is is in the past yes uh through years of canceling found, and, and medication i no longer have to could, do that that could be found incredibly quickly we would be nice to know what time of the what time of the season it was it i think it's may school, it's though. may because the, the the germans are on the march germany invaded france may 10th 
and oh, pretty right. much had it wrapped up by June 10th. So it's in that window. Well, then the statement about being hard for roughing to win 20 again doesn't really work because in those days they didn't even begin the season until April 15th. Middle, middle or late April. Yeah. So it would be hard to say much about a pitcher's pace to 20 wins in, in the middle of May. Still, I'll let him have it. Um, getting back to the inflection point. So 46 minutes in is when we we really get the point where it changes, where it's clearly not our timeline. Because they're listening to the radio, and Walter Winchell announces that Lindbergh is actually going to seek the Republican nomination. And then that's where it all changes. Right. So here's a question I have for you. You know more about Lindbergh than I do. Given how much he despised, I mean, he, he literally left the United States for three years, I think it was, to live overseas because he couldn't take the attention anymore. He was just overwhelmed by how much attention he was getting. Yes, and he, and he found Americans. He found Americans vulgar, and mostly because he, he couldn't go anywhere without being mobbed by reporters. So given that, do you think he would have run for president? I do not. And in fact, the 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 kernel of truth here is that there certainly were Republicans who would love to for him to have run, but he had no interest in doing that. He he because I think well for for one thing he was a fairly private person. Obviously, he wouldn't have gone to Europe if he if he, if he didn't want to get away from the media and he knew that if he ran for for office any office i think he, he would have been worse than ever and the second thing was Lindbergh, the idea of people in his a political party telling him what he could and couldn't say that was completely anathema to him uh he he, he just that's what got him in so much trouble it's it's kind of it, it's if you think about it it's 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 a, a bit of a conundrum for a, a, a figure that, who plays the role he does in, in the book and in this show because the same thing that got him into trouble and made all the headlines that he was saying about America's Jews is what essentially kept him from ever being a real candidate because he he was going to say what he wanted to say and nobody was going to tell him different. He wouldn't put himself in a position where he couldn't say what he wanted to say. It's also an interesting place where you're used to adulation. They always say whenever someone's famous says, oh, he ought to run for office or she ought to run for office. Once you do that, approximately half of the population no, no longer loves you. You've sacrificed half of the love that you have because you've got to declare a side. Right. And I remember how popular Colin Powell was, and he just always shied away from taking it to a political realm because half that popularity would have ev evaporated. He also, I, I think his family was against it too, but um, Well, even Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, I think her approval ratings were 75, 80, 85 percent, and the minute she declared for president, they probably dropped 40 percent, right? Right. So yeah, Lindbergh was never, at least if you, if you believe what I've read, uh, Lindbergh never considered running for president, didn't have the personality for it. Um, so that's where Roth takes liberties. I actually I have no idea if Roth knew that about Lindbergh. I would guess that he did, but he needed a device, and Lindbergh is obviously a, a, a great one. We haven't, I don't, have we seen Lindbergh? I don't think we've seen Lindbergh yet. We've heard yes, it he's, he's, on the radio. Yes, he gives a speech in it on a newsreel. And I think that, was that the, the famous speech in Iowa, I think they call it the Iowa speech or something like that. Uh, and if we haven't already heard it, we're, we're going to. Um, no, we, we did hear it in the first episode, I think. In, in, that's one liberty I believe the show takes, or and the, probably the book, which is that uh, Lindbergh in real life gave that speech, uh, I believe it was after the Republican primaries and the nomination and the convention in 1940. And in the show, he gives the speech before uh, anybody is running for president. Right. I believe in the book, he never floats the idea that he's thinking of running for president. I believe he shows up at the convention and is ah. overwhelmingly 
thrown into the throws his hat in the ring and gets the nomination there. I don't believe there's a run up to it. And if I'm maybe we'll maybe they'll talk about this in the show. But right. people who who aren't familiar with with political history before the nineteen say the nineteen seventies, it's kind of shocking to find that they would choose candidates at the convention. This happened all the time. It was exciting. <laughs> it was a lot more fun than the way we do it now. I mean, the great peril, and this was probably was probably Roth's inspiration. When Wilkie won the nomination in 1940, he was a nobody six months before that. I mean, people knew who he was, but he had no designs on the office. The party had no designs on it. He was too liberal. He was for social justice. He was in some ways more liberal than Roosevelt. Um, but through this combination of miracles, um, and part of it was the fact that the, that the war in Europe was raging, he suddenly got became a, a popular candidate among the right people, went to the convention, was I think he finished third on the first ballot at the convention, and then the support just slowly kept moving toward him, and all of a sudden he's the nominee. So to, to think that somebody like Lindbergh couldn't have gone to a convention having done nothing before uh, and not won... No, it could have happened. Right. It's very plausible in the book that that it could come about like this. Here's the right man at the right time. And he just showed up. Yes. And he flumes in the book in the book he 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 flies himself everywhere. He flies right. to to every campaign stop and to his allure and his appeal. Uh, you know, the one thing I learned that um recently too is that I had always foolishly assumed that Roosevelt was tremendously popular at the time. He was Oh not. no. Oh no. My grandfather <laughs> my grandfather referred to him as that mama's boy in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, one of the reasons why the US was so slow to come to Britain's aid was that Roosevelt didn't feel that he had the political capital to spend on something like he of course he wanted to help but he, at every every opportunity, he had to be dragged kicking and screaming because he was afraid he'd lose the election. Right, he was a political animal. Yes. For sure. Uh, always testing the will. And if, I think if he thought he had a mandate like he had two or three years earlier, we probably would have been involved, whether uh, officially or unofficially, a year or two earlier. Um, but he just, he was just afraid of, of losing the election in 1940 and then even even after he won the election he still was was worried about it because he had i can't remember the quote you might be you might remember it the quote where he said he wasn't going to send any um our boys off to fight for i think that's a johnson quote actually but roosevelt said something similar during the campaign um and he 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 knew that if he declared war or got us involved in a war by helping helping england too much that uh it would hurt him politically, even if it was simply in terms of legislation being passed. So, right. I, I think we he, touched on he, this. He was not. Go ahead. I think we touched on this in the first episode that there were still people in the country who were bitter that we'd gotten involved in the First World War. Yes. So that was that was residual. And a significant anti-war movement, especially in the colleges. It's funny. I people just assume, as I did for a long time, that nothing like that ever happened until the 1960s. But au contraire, it was. Uh, <laughs> It was. It went way back to the nineteen to the mid nineteen thirties. Right. Except you know they, they wore suits and sweaters, so they didn't seem as radical. <laughs> and there were a lot of blue bloods with who had short hair. Right. Uh, so um, I have this rule about podcasts, which I think I mentioned to you maybe off off mic, which is that a podcast about a TV episode shouldn't run longer than the episode. So. We're bumping up against that. Uh, I want to ask you this question. Uh, if we weren't doing this podcast, how excited would, would you be for the second episode of the show? I'd be very excited because I think they've done a great job of laying the groundwork. And there are a lot of wheels in motion. And uh, I, I think the threads are out there. And, and I want to see how those threads come together. Uh, we haven't mentioned Winona Ryder's character. She's she's now met right. the rabbi. Yep. And uh, I mean, he's he's pretty upfront. He <laughs> he's 
He looks like he's trying to get his hooks into her right right off the bat. Yes. Remember that line from Seinfeld when the rabbi meets uh, Elaine? He says, you know, uh, rabbis can marry. <laughs> so I, yeah. I was kind of hoping he would say that. You know. Uh... <laughs> uh, I, I am looking forward to more. Uh, obviously, it's, it's incredibly well done. Um, I, I think I have some trepidation. Um, it's 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 difficult to watch Nazis beating up Jews. I'm not Jewish, but still, it's tough. Uh, I, I'm. It's actually, tough watching I'm, Nazis beat up anybody. It is. Uh, it's it's, it is, it's, it's, it's tough it's, watching it's anybody tough when they're our when they're at when they're Americans. Um, right. Uh, it it just it frankly it hits closer to home than than I'm comfortable with. I'll watch it, and I'm, but there's there's a level of unease that that's going to come along with that um i'm i want to see uh, i think we talked we mentioned this last week the ending of the show is different than somewhat different than the ending of the book so i can't wait to see what simon came up with but that's five episodes <laughs> away yeah i mean i i watch shows where bullies get their comeuppance i mean terrible movies just because a bully gets his comeuppance so that's what i live for in in, <laughs> in real but life i'm not gonna get that you're yeah. not going to get that in this show, are they? Get, I know it's any more than I guess. I guess in 1941 they threw a few Nazis, American Nazis, in jail, right? But that's not going to be what this show's about. It's guess what? There's not a happy ending, kids. Not really. Well, we don't know. Maybe he throws. We a don't know. Hole. We don't. I mean, look. I know that I, I'm fairly certain that the, the show does not end with uh, with Lindbergh uh, formulating a non-aggression pact a lasting non-aggression pact with, with Hitler but I also think that uh, based on why this show was made and the source material uh, I don't think we're going to be uh, we're going to be leave the last episode in a sort of a glow of optimism I could be wrong maybe I'm wrong I've been wrong before What else? Anything else you want to say about this before we before we sign off? No, we'll see you next episode. Oh, are you promising? Is this a commitment? I'll, I'll show up for episode three, sure. All right, episode, episode three. three of our show, episode two uh, our of show. The Plot Against America. Yes, and the podcast is The Pod Against America. Um, and uh, we hope you can find it on iTunes soon. That will make, it, make things easier for everybody, but uh, that is not up to us. It's out there. iTunes, do your stuff. Until then, you have found us, and uh, you can find us here again next time. So with that, we will sign off. Take care, buddy. Take care, Rob Nyer. This is Jim Baker saying goodbye.